Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. On 29 November, we talked to founders and venture capitalists on emerging technology trends in Southeast Asia. We learned about which startups to join, emerging country and regional trends, and fresh takes on the latest founder, VC, and investment news. Interested in joining us on our next episode of Southeast Asia Tech Clubhouse? Sign up on jeremyow.com. Nominations are limited and approved on a rolling basis. You can self-nominate or nominate someone who you think would fit the bill. You can find the episode's transcript in the podcast description. The audio quality for future episodes will be improved. Let's dive right into it. Varen Jeng, good to see you all. So Varen's dialing in from India. Kind of like a great experience from his experience as a marketer and leading and founding marketing startups in Southeast Asia. And then for Chia as a VC, besides on capital, but has also a ton of experience in Southeast Asia as well. And then for myself, kind of like founded and, you know, grew up in Southeast Asia, but also built some companies along the way. <laughs> so, so good to have, see all of us here today, just kind of like discussing, uh, you know, kind of like Southeast Asia. So I think the big question, I think, for everybody here is what the hell is going on with Southeast Asia in 2020 and 2021, right? Well, uh, what do you think about that? I've mostly built companies as an operator and also as an investor in Asia. And I always hear like very wildly different ideas of what Southeast Asia and Asia sounds and looks like. Um, so I'd be curious to hear like what people outside Southeast Asia think about the space. Yeah. I mean, I think one big thing I think about Southeast Asia is that, you know, I think people often look at it from the consumption perspective, right? Which is, hey, there are hundreds of millions in Indonesia (laughs) and Vietnam and so so forth. And they're very much all middle class consumers who are experiencing for the first time you know, ascending the income ladder, right? And I think there's a very familiar story for the internet for that as a result, kind of like modeling the trajectory, you know, it's like, you know, what is Facebook for Southeast Asia? What is LinkedIn for Southeast Asia? What is, you know, B2B SaaS for Southeast Asia? So I think that's how I think a lot of people talk about Southeast Asia primarily is like saying this is a geography where consumers are growing and the supporting enterprise sector is growing as well. How about you, Varen? What do you think? How do people think about Southeast Asia? I think there are different lenses to view it and I think like you alluded I think there's one type of type of companies that can be built, which are like the what I call the copy paste companies. So you're like, you know, Uber clone, your food delivery clones, uh, your e-commerce clones, etc. So I think that's one category of companies. And then I think you have the other category of companies which are very like unique uh, to specific market opportunities. So you have like your um, your Carta book in India, right? Uh, I, I don't think there's like a Carta book version of Fit in the US, right? Or there is, but it's, it's very different, right? Like you can, yes, you can call it accounting software, but it's still very different. So I think the dynamics of the population, 
mix of the, the the market and all these things combined, I think it gives rise to different options which could only probably be executed in that market, right? Or those specific markets and nowhere else. So that, that's how I view it. You're right. I think the first general perception of like cloning business models from the US or other parts of the country of the world and bringing it to Southeast Asia, that doesn't work for, for a lot of different reasons. And I think for me, looking at India has always been a bigger proxy for cloning business models. And we've invested in a few business models that work really, really well in India as opposed to Europe, China, um, US, etc. Right. So I think that's the first thing that comes to mind when we think about what knowledge really transfers over to Southeast Asia. I think the second one that everyone talks a lot about is, is really about the fragmentation, right? So I think the first conversation I always have with a lot of Western VCs who like try to look into Southeast Asia is always, oh, like Southeast Asia is great in this region. What's a great regional play that makes sense in Southeast Asia? And so, like, the first conversation is always, like, pretty difficult, which is, like, hey, look, it's really fragmented. Like, it's not just a, you need to localize each geography type conversation, but a lot of things just don't make sense as, as regional plays, right? Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, Indo, Singapore, are, like, just so different that like, you really struggle to imagine non-cross-border regional plays that really exist, right? So, I think... Those two are some of the like, initial big conversations I have with people looking at South Asia. Do, do you not think that, so there's a, like in Philippines, you have like K-Mongo, right? It's basically what, doing Stripe for Philippines. Do you not think there are certain spaces where you can do it for a single market? Instead of coming in with this like, oh, what's a great regional model to play? I think the more interesting question is how deep do you go? Right? Especially when you talk about markets which are fairly shallow from a GDP capital basis. Like, I think that the conversation is like, how much of this mindshare and wallet share can you really occupy in relatively shallow markets, right? And that's a very different way of thinking of, oh, how can I like blitzkrieg my way across like 10 different Southeast Asian countries? I think it really depends on the type of company though. I think they're... There's some companies which allow you to go like very deep because they just the market size is there in one specific market, right? But let's say if you were doing like a B2B like SaaS like play, right? I think a lot of markets in South Asia by themselves are not big enough for you to do that. So you have to go down the path of, oh, let me go and set up office in Indonesia, Philippines, I think it really depends on the type of company. For consumer, also, I think it depends, right? I mean, I guess once you get to a company like Grab size, so for those of you who are in the audience who are not fam- as familiar, but South Asia, South Asia uh, Grab is the Uber for South Asia, but they've expanded much more than that. So they're now kind of like a scrap. So I think for a company like Grab, when you raise the amount of money they have, like you, you, you can't just sit in like I mean in Gojek, right? You can't just sit in Indonesia. I think you have to go beyond that. So I think you know what's really interesting here is that you know we're kind of using a lot of analogies, right? So we're talking about Grab, it's like Uber to explain things. We're talking about shallow versus deep. I think that parallels a lot of the conversations that we have in, you know, kind of to the original question, which is like, how do we describe 
the state of Southeast Asia tech. And I think oftentimes, you know, we use analogies like, you know, imagine America, but way poorer and fragmented and doesn't have any of the, you know, American models yet, right? And so, you know, Uber kind of like entered Southeast Asia market by market and found themselves initially competing against Grab, which was, um, could say cloned and localized by you know another Harvard Business School alum who had just returned to Southeast Asia from America, right? And we also saw that happen for Gojek at the same time from the same year at Harvard MBA as well. So I think it's interesting to see that kind of like cross pollination does work, and I think a lot of people go for that you know breath because you know they look at it as ties between geography, between culture and trade allows for that breath as approach. But it's also interesting to see that Southeast Asia has really seen itself also build out a super app approach for a lot of businesses in terms of how they look at lifetime value, how they look at, you know, your app should be the, you know, the super app or home for multiple functions, right? And in that sense, that seems to parallel the experience of the Chinese technology scene, where we're seeing like increasing amounts of flow of money, as well as inspiration, as well as talent and founders. So I think it's quite interesting to look at sometimes, you know, Southeast Asia continues to be, you know, since medieval times, I guess, continues between to be the trade route between East and West, but also very much uh, copying and cloning that into something quite unique. Essentially, no difference from a conglomerate run like tech, right? So <laughs> and conglomerate plays, plays uh, fundamentally like talent, capital, arbitrage. And, and that's really a reflection of the fact, again, a reflection of the fact that some of these markets, capital and talent is very scarce and markets are also very shallow. So why not build a conglomerate play? That makes a lot of sense. You can dominate a lot of fields, like you increase your economics, blah, blah, blah. Like, so I've never really seen Subabs is fundamentally a very different strategy from that. And so the way that I look at it again is really like when we're talking about some of these markets which are very shallow, how can uh, you know increase increase the LTVs? How do we increase our, our wallet shares, etc., etc.? Like I feel like that's still fundamentally the direction and way that you need to talk about some of these markets. I don't think the conglomerate approach is a bad approach necessarily, but I think you just need to be very aware of what the actual underlying dynamics look like, right? Like I think EdTech, for example, in, in India has done a, a great job, like being able to provide that path consolidation that allows EdTech to flourish, right? That really comes right now from a from a conglomerate private equity holding group type strategy. Because of what they've done, they've managed to like really create the economics that makes sense in, in a relatively shallower market. Sure, I think you raise, you know, two good points, right? I mean I think the first is conglomerates actually outperform you know single product or company performers. Which is something that's I think underestimated. I think in, when we look at the US, I think there's a huge thesis around like conglomerates are inefficient, and investors should be the ones diversifying to different product lines instead of companies, right? And so as a result, I think in the states you do see that on average, you know, conglomerates tend to underperform the market because of the management efficiency. I think I remember doing some analysis at Bain, you know, and one of the big points that we had was like in emerging markets and in many countries around the world, if you looked at multi-year performance like conglomerates you know have some advantages you know one is like they tend to think on over a slightly longer term 
But two, I think the big part is invisible is that there is actually substantial returns from the political and economic leverage you have normally when you are a conglomerate. You know, you only need to look at, say, Samsung or Sony to be like, oh, technically it's underperforming, but it's still going, right? And so I think conglomerates is often like, I always, I think the elephant in the room is not about economic performance. I think the elephant in the room is very much like, what's the ability for them to leverage the invisible political and economic advantages of scale? And like you said, being able to leverage that compliance with a regulator in one field, but extend that to another vertical, right? I always tell people like, you know, when when you're a sexy company, you know, you get called an Amazon, right? And then and then when you're an unsexy company, then you're being called a conglomerate, right? But I think that's where I think, you know, I think that's how I think people, companies in shallower markets have built out, like you said, that depth. They acknowledge that Thailand, like Chang Group, acknowledges that Thailand is a small market. I mean, not many people, people do drink Chang beer outside. So obviously in other countries other than Thailand, but not in the volumes necessary to make it a huge conglomerate. But if you actually look at their web of products, they actually have multiple services and products that make it deep enough, I guess, from a stack perspective, right? And they tend to be mutually reinforcing each other as well. I think that's an interesting dynamic for conglomerates. Thailand is a decently large market, right? But the, the way that the political dynamic in Thailand, for example, where a lot of things are still fundamentally quite tightly controlled, is very it's rather different from Indonesia, for example, right? Where where yes, obviously families hold a, a tremendous amount of power, but there's also you can still, you know, reach people, you can still do things semi-independently. You, you, to, to succeed to a certain scale, you don't necessarily need anyone's support up to a certain point. Right? And so I think that's part of the reason why Indonesia is, I think in my opinion, slightly more dynamic on the, on the startup space because the, 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 the scale of the opportunity to reach a certain size exists uh, without necessarily needing to then worry about who you want to partner with, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so the two things that come to mind when I think about Southeast Asia is A, like how dynamic and open what the political environment in terms of how early stage companies can get support, can get plugged into certain ecosystems or can get can get that kind of conglomerate family type resources between different countries. And then the second obviously is like how fast some of those markets will go and how competitive it is, right? Because you don't want to use the words families and conglomerates in a in a in a monolithic sense, right? There's a lot of competition that goes on between families and you want to understand like how do third party business models play a role in that type of competition. I think a fun part of that is when they first come to arrive in Singapore is they always say like, they're always like, I want to build a company in Singapore. Let's start from Singapore because, you know, it's like everybody from Singapore speaks English and, you know, it's an easy place to live and it's good travel and everything. And people realize like, oh no, like the market is just honestly, I mean, you know, 3 million local citizens, right? You know, and that's like you know, the size of like a small city, right? In in um, America, let a, I mean, with a similar GDP per capita, but, you know, it doesn't hold a candle to the whole of America, right? Even though both are called countries. And then after that, the second thing they always say after that is like, oh, let's build something for Indonesia, right? It's got 300 million people, right? And then they go there and they're like, oh, wait, like now the GDP per capita is like an order of magnitude less than America, right? And so, you know, I think the, the failure of imagination kind of like breaks down very quickly when people are trying to like, I don't understand the market, 
or in terms of building it out, right? Um, and so I think it's almost like when you enter, you know, Singapore, you have to say like, oh, this is like America in terms of what we're trying to build, whatever it is. But we have to be comfortable with a three million person market versus like, yeah, you know, we're willing to go to Indonesia, but we're willing to be okay with multiple shallow wallets and we're going to play for the long term, right? And we need to bring the correct business models either from, you know, China, you know, which targets their tier two, tier three cities. Because truth is Beijing and Shanghai is, is richer and faster growing than many Southeast Asia economies, right? I think in terms of their sophistication, in terms of user products and user education. And I think there's a similar issue, of course, for like people tackling rural issues in many geographies and how they have to be very explicit about how they're different from the urban place. I think it's very similar to how like my friends tackling the South America or Africa market are also like, you know, mindful about what analogies and what business models will thrive, not just from a total market size that you talked about, but also earlier that like you mentioned, Chia, about the wallet size on a per pack basis, right? And for example, like one thing I personally felt was really interesting, for example, is like we've seen unicorns grow up in the travel space in Southeast Asia, right? And I think that's something that all, you know, you know, the billion people across, like not just Southeast Asia, but all of the travelers from Japan and Korea, India, like that's a huge market in terms of a travel destination. And there's a lot of money being spent on the tourism industry. The one framework I use that might be helpful for like folks is like, I really, really like spending a lot of time looking at India. I, I, I generally believe like for, for many industries, India is, is about, you know, four or five years ahead of, of Southeast Asia. You know, Southeast Asia, we've got about, what, 11, 12 unicorns and India has about like 20 to 30. Um, so we're like, you know, four or five years ahead of India. And, and so I think one thing that really frustrates me a little bit is sometimes we, we ask ourselves, questions that already have been solved in the in the Indian ecosystem, right? Like Andrew Rain, you brought up the point very early on about B2B SaaS, right? Like why can't we just open B2B SaaS offices all across Southeast Asia if the market is so shallow and then and, and you you founded a B2B SaaS company and, and you know very much why you can't do that, right? Because the market is still very, very shallow. And so the idea of like, oh what's the timeline for when B2B SaaS is viable in emerging markets, in my mind like solved right in India like there are some opportunities in India that have have come to fruition but it's still very much for a lot of companies a a very frustrating point but you can see some pretty interesting areas where BB SaaS has has turned out not that bad in India and like in Southeast Asia I think that that type of comparison frequently isn't made but it's kind of like oh let's 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 take a bet and see where that goes. So, like, yeah, that that's been for me to like at least the most helpful framework I can use. No, but on that point, like, even the Indian companies, right, who are B two B, like, like they end up setting up offices in like Singapore, Indonesia, etc. Because they they usually what I've seen is that most of these startups in India, they which serve like maybe mid market enterprise, they start off with just Indian customers only, and then. Then their play is like, oh, let's go after the like Southeast Asia regional play because their US counterpart, which they have cloned, already kind of has a big market share in the US. So they don't want to go and fight them. And then once they hit like real scale, then they go and like, you know, set up offices in the US or like UK or something like that, right? So I've seen a bunch of B2B SaaS companies go down this route. I also think 
maybe that's another reason why you don't really have like I mean off the top of my head I can't think of a breakout when I mean breakout I mean like past like 50 or 100 million or B2B SaaS company in Southeast Asia or India which serves the enterprise market maybe there's Paxnap I'm sure there might be some companies, but generally there aren't, right? Most of the, like, look at, like, Freshdesk, Zoho, all these guys, most of them focus on the lower, like, SME. End. And I think once you do the SME play, then it's just, you can get customers anywhere in the world, right? You don't need to have a localized team on always. Yeah, I think what's interesting here is, you know, if you have to enter Southeast Asia, you're looking to build or something, or you're trying to figure out which startup is really going to kind of, like, take wing and fly, you can't just look at cloning and localizing all the U.S. firms on startups or, you know, other ideas. But you actually have to go and be quite intentional and say, like, let me think carefully, which vertical am I cloning and why? And then subdividing that by geography as well as the GDP per capita. And then kind of like thinking through, like, you know, even your business model, right, from B2B SaaS versus like direct consumer. I mean, I think we've seen so many times, you know, B2B SaaS companies really struggle because, the market is not comfortable, you know, surrendering a transaction fee, right? You know, this is like never had a surrender transaction fee before, right? And so they are getting educated and saying like, okay, as a SaaS, you know, we can, you know, take 1% or 2% as a transaction fee on a recurring basis. And it takes time to educate the market, which is a funny thing to say, obviously, because, you know, in the States, like, you know, like, oh, you know, it's like people are pretty sophisticated and say like, okay, you know, PayPal is already charging me 3%, for example. So 2% is way better than 3%, right? But that is a totally different conversation when you're looking at, you know, for example, selling to SMEs, small, medium enterprises in various markets, even kind of Singapore, for example. Yeah, I'd love to hear like from, from the audience actually. But Jeremy, maybe I'm curious to get your thoughts. I mean, you're somebody who's who's obviously built in, in the US and, and now like coming coming to Southeast Asia, maybe and a, a you're a Singaporean, right? So you do understand the scene in a very local way. What were some of the initial challenges and surprises that you have when you're when you're kind of ideating about Southeast Asia business opportunities? I think that's why during the pandemic and coming back to Singapore and Southeast Asia, I put together a podcast at Brave Dynamics and was really kind of putting together my thoughts around this. And actually, that's something every time a guest comes on board, I often interview and search for all the people who are bridging like different cultures, right? Like they've been a CEO in both India and Indonesia, right? You know, under Rocket or someone else who's done kind of like e-commerce in multiple geographies, right? And I do think about it from three, you know, high level things that kind of like surprised me, you know. I think the first thing that really surprised me coming back was like over the past, especially five years has been how fast like Chinese inspiration and products and services and ideas have become like, I won't say a North Star, but an alternative North Star to America. You go back in like 20. 12 to 2015, you know, I think everybody was just talking about how do we copy, you know, US startups, right? How do we look at Amazon's inspiration? And I think to some extent, there was also in Singapore, Southeast Asia, a huge actually European uh, perspective as well, because of I think the early bet that Rocket Internet had made in building out, you know, Lazada and Zalora. And I think the flows from European funds um, into it. So I think, you know, people will look at that as like American inspiration, talent, European capital as, you know, kind of like risk-taking capital in Southeast Asia was kind of like 
the thing. But I think coming back in 2020, I think, you know, you just see so many people are just like, you look at Xiaomi, right? I mean, you know, it's just like, it's a household brand where they're selling not just the phones, but also all kinds of accessories. You know, I myself have a... <laughs> Insect Zapper, right, that I bought on Lazada, which is owned by a Chinese company now for the Xiaomi brand. And I think, you know, you see that in the best malls, um, you know, just kind of like Chinese tech goods at parity, I think, from people's perspective, for especially for the budget and mainstream consumers. I mean, obviously, for the, the elite, the Western-oriented, for example, iPhones are still a big thing, for example. But, you know, I think there's a lot of, like, interesting kind of like consumer differences, but also inspiration differences. I think second thing is, I think the B2B sophistication level is just an order of magnitude different from the US versus uh, Southeast Asia. I think on average, I think American SMEs are much more like tech savvy, familiar with the opportunities, but also very savvy, you know, discriminators and willing to take bets on, you know, kind of like new tools, right? Whereas I think for Southeast Asia, I think you know, depending on the market to marketing, obviously Singapore is a little bit ahead in terms of GDP per capita in comparison. But obviously on the other end of the scale, you're looking at Myanmar, for example. So a lot of people kind of enter Southeast Asia, it's like, yeah, you know, like I sell these really savvy tools for people who already have a marketing stack and an accounting stack, for example, that empowers the way I do this sales stack, for example, or software. And I think they kind of fall flat on that because this you can't presuppose that existing tech stack to integrate with, nor the cultural like training stack. And I think the last thing that's, I think, a big difference as well is, again, like, you know, just how different the languages are. The, the real reality is that regulatory compliance is difficult, and there is also a hidden cost of doing business in Southeast Asia, right? And those who are able to understand it, kind of like, and live with it, are going to be like, okay, you know, I'm going to have to work with these departments and I have to do these things and say these things to get it right. And you're not willing to do that, I think, for good reasons. Then I think you, you kind of like have to be aware of that and just say like there's some verticals which are still very vulnerable to individual regulators or compliance mechanisms. You know, the solutions are very different, right? And so I think... For example, one of the big differences that we saw, you know, is like if you look at when I worked with clients like kind of like the um, alcohol industry, right? Is <laughs> like, for example, like Thailand still doesn't, obviously is a big consumption of alcohol, but officially the government stance is that as a Buddhist country under the last king, they put together, you know, very severe restrictions on the marketing of alcohol, right? Uh, so, you know, you can't do price promotions, you know, all your, you can't run ads, you can't do, you know, product packaging for promotions. You know, when people hear that, they're kind of like, that's like so mind-boggling, right? Because everybody knows that you can go to Thailand and drink wherever you can buy from anywhere. But if you think about from a business perspective, imagine you enter in and say, like, I want to do a, you know, a spirits company and I'm going to enter Thailand. They're going to quickly find out that there's no way to create the premium marketing tools. On And I think that kind of like idiosyncratic individual country by country risk is something that's really underappreciated because I think the benefit of Europe, for example, is that the EU is kind of like that cross-border cross border leveler and arbitrage or regulation, right? Whereas we don't see that in Southeast Asia. I mean, ASEAN is, people are like, oh, you know, isn't ASEAN like the EU of Europe? And I'm like, no, nowhere close, right? There's no regulatory bite. There's no, it's, you know, it's just a talk shop, right? You know, so I think that's really a big, Thing. So I think the three things is like, firstly, I think the the emergence of 
China as a North Star alternate to the US, not necessarily competition, but just as an alternative in terms of inspiration, products, services, business models, and to a lesser extent, you know, kind of like European capital approaches and obviously Indian startup business approaches. And then secondly, you know, we talked about is the regulatory differences as well as the differences in sophistication, lastly, in terms of the ability of the enterprise market to support sophisticated or, you know, more stacked or leveraged technology stacks. What do you think about that, Varen? What do you think about that, Jing? I'll probably just, maybe I'll push back slightly on the China's and North Star thing. I think that thinking certainly existed like 2018, 2019, very popular. I'm not very convinced that that's necessarily uh, the, the right way to think about it. I think, for example, some Chinese models have done pretty well in, in Southeast Asia. I think one thing to bear in mind and the general takeaway is like it's not just about localization. Local environment severely affects what is even possible or what the economics look like. If you look at China as a North Star, like one reason you do that is because the infrastructure stack is so deep on a, on a technical basis, like the ability to manipulate tons and tons of data at a scale that no other country can see is very impressive. But you take that stack and you try to apply it to an environment where there is very little data to start with. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. So logistics, I think, is an area where I think some Chinese models have done decently well. I think insurance is probably, like B2B insurance, for example, I think that also pans out pretty decently. But I do have some questions on some of the models, right? And, and its applicability outside China. So it's, it's, I think for a lot of people, the way I, I see like analysis, and, and I disagree with a lot of it, because like they always try to look at it from a consumer perspective. So I don't want to single out business models here, but like they say, oh, you know, consumer purchasing patterns look pretty similar in China versus a Southeast Asian country. So therefore, this business model will work out without really understanding like the dynamics behind, for example, how WeChat works and like the dominance of WeChat. And then when they try to build these business models, it, it tends to, to not work out too well, right? So I'm, you can probably tell I'm not a big fan of a lot of the consumer-facing Chinese business models that, that have popped up in, in Southeast Asia and that cost of data. So I think that's one thing to bear in mind. Uh, and again, that's why I, I, the actual tech stats, the actual behaviors and, and backend looks very similar with a major exception of, of course, of a fintech. And as a, as a current fintech investor, I also kind of get frustrated by a lot of people trying to bring fintech business models from, from India to Southeast Asia without really thinking about what the backend really looks like in some of these countries. So, so I think that's something to, to bear in mind. But I, I think in general, like good points. Like I do see China as a really good space to look at when you're thinking about specific types of industries. Sure, I think maybe to clarify, I wasn't saying that China is the best model, something to clone or to be inspired by. I'm just saying that what's interesting is that over the past five years, people have, I think in 2014, 2015, I think people have said like, oh, you know, we're looking at Chinese company for inspiration. Nobody would ever have said that really in 2012, 2013, 2014. I think now some people are saying that in 2020. So I think it's less about whether it's the right decision to do that. I think, you know, I think you can fall in the same trap of like, getting inspired by American YC company, which is very popular, right? Or a European company or, you know, so and so forth. I'm just saying like, what's interesting is the emergence of China as a source of inspiration and to a secondary aspect, 
I think Indian companies and startups and valuations as a source of inspiration. So, but I agree with you that I think people just still have to like think about this from a first principles market driven approach, right? Yeah, anyway, so uh, Varen, I was going to ask Jingying, uh, what business models do you see China as a better proxy for, and then which business models do you think India is a better proxy for for Southeast Asia business models? I think again, the fundamental principle I go back to is like something that requires the processing of a lot of data. There's only two areas so far I can think of. I haven't looked into it exhaustively, but like I think rural to tier one city e-commerce corridors is definitely one thing that's very interesting. And then anything that requires like a lot of data manipulation, so logistics, e-commerce backend, insurance. I think these are areas that China has done really well in. And then a lot of things that. The India ecosystem has produced. I think it's, it's quite interesting to look at. So again, I actually spent most of my time looking more in like India operationally to understand like what the operational backend could look like in Southeast Asia. I look at US business models mainly for fun because I think they're really cool. And I look at Chinese business models if I really want to dive into like that technical B two B backend. I know that's not an answer to what your company is building, and I'll just post that. I mean, I think it's kind of a complementary here. Is speak about a Chinese component because I've also worked at a company that was backed by Temasek, a Singaporean sovereign wealth fund in China, right? And I was part of the expansion in the early two uh, thousands, right? You know, late. And I've seen and also studied at Tsinghua and kind of like seen some of that cross border comparison as well. I think what's underappreciated, I think, and the reason why we just focusing on the Chinese side, I think the reason why Chinese companies look at Southeast Asia, and I think that's something that maybe people outside China and Singapore don't really understand. But I think the reason why Chinese companies, I think firstly think about it in terms of Chinese diaspora, right? Which is that Singaporean supposedly has a majority Chinese diaspora in the population. So I think they look at it as a in a familiar ground in terms of like supposedly language comprehensibility because, you know, supposedly the Chinese people in Singapore should speak Mandarin, which I'm sure that Cha will disappoint <laughs> them as, as, as will I. But I think that's something that it's kind of like a presupposition there. But also there's a lot of hidden trade that happens. I mean, obviously so much trade that between India and America flows through Southeast Asia, right? And vice versa, so much, so many Chinese goods flow from China to you know, kind of like the rest of the world through um, Southeast Asia. And so I think if you look at, you know, the goods on Lazada and e-commerce platforms, like so much of the, you know, like stuff that's packaged is just manufactured in China, right? And so I think a lot of Chinese companies are saying like, you know, hey, we're going to piggyback on first, like from a consumer's perspective, let's look at the Chinese diaspora as a source of talent, as well as a source of, you know, opportunity and comfort level in terms of cultural expansion. And I think there's also some truth from a Chinese diaspora talent perspective. I think there's a quite a known trend of like, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, Chinese ethnicity tycoons having conversations in China about uh, partnering various companies and you know, expansion paths. But I think secondly as well as like the hidden dynamic of goods um, and supplies from China is actually a big part for why um, you see so many kind of like Chinese companies kind of like looking at Singapore and therefore Southeast Asia as a next likely expansion path. And of course, lastly is, you know, big shift away. I think a lot of Chinese companies back in, you know, the early 2000s were kind of like looking at America's expansion opportunity, right? Uh, just in terms of like, you know, they look at top two as US and China, right? But I think with the US tensions, uh, I think people are just find that it's too risky to expand to America 
to build assets or talent and data warehouses, which are likely to be seized or handicapped in some way. And so I think looking for the nearby geographic expansions, right? Uh, so I think that's why you see Chinese companies just kind of like growing aggressively in anywhere but, you know, America. Maybe we should bring up some people from the audience as well. Yeah, so if anybody wants to uh, ask any questions, feel free to raise your hand and we're happy to bring you in. Uh, just know that this segment is being recorded because uh, we, you know, so many people in Southeast Asia are using um, Android and can't get in. So uh, that's probably one of the decisions we have to make. So if anybody wants to raise their hand, feel free to raise your hand and um, yeah, ask a question. All right, inviting Dimitri. What questions do you have, Dimitri? Arjun, hi, we haven't met offline yet, but it's uh, good to hear your perspective on B2B cars. wanted to ask you the counterpoint question. What are the differences you see between India backends and Southeast Asia backends? And not to make this again about the unknown creature that is Southeast Asia, let's just talk about, say, Malaysian, Thailand, and Indonesia specifically. Yeah, I think maybe specifically is your interest like in tech. Well, let's talk about fintech if you like. I'm actually open to any discussion <laughs> on enterprise backends. We can do logistics. We can do media streaming if you like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so fintech's a so fintech's a good one, right? Like I think, yeah, okay, let's use fintech, right? Like the backend infrastructure is just so different, right? Like UPI and what they're doing with NCPI, what the NCPI is doing is just so far ahead of everything that we've seen. Right, I still remember like maybe five, six years ago, the conversation in Southeast Asia was, you know, how can we hack QR codes as a concept, right? And then UPI is this huge thing that, that's just that's just popped up and, and potentially also going to overrun Southeast Asia. And so it's very hard to think about like disruption of back-end payment systems, right, in a, in a really meaningful way, given how different some of the ecosystems are and given like how large... Of the of, of some of these challenges look like right like so you you probably know like we 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 did like Indo and like the the, the type of challenge and the interbank switch right like the type an interbank switch is very very different from like the type of system that the UPI is right so like I, like I just really struggle to imagine like what some of the lessons can be when the back end really looks so so different right um. And so that's one of the challenges I think about. The other thing also, and maybe we'll take another another vertical, like insurance, right? I think the insurance ecosystem and the, the, the complexity of some of the regulations involved, right? Type the Thailand insurance ecosystem looks just so different from Indonesia. When I look at, for example, what some of the Indian, Indian regulators are doing in, in the insurance tech space, and I'm like a, actually a big fan, like India recently, released something to do with like securitization around insurance like it's just the the type of conversations are just so different the types of people that deal with in terms of like what the policymakers really care about is just so different that yeah i really do struggle sometimes to imagine like what can really be brought over i can see some really interesting ideas i can see some really interesting concepts but when some of the regulators are literally still dealing with some very basic problems it really becomes a struggle, right? Um, I'm sorry, I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> no, you sound traumatized by dealing with BI and other But what about <laughs> taking a one page from UPI book? Isn't there hope there? 
Yes, um, absolutely. I'm pretty excited to see what what Sunday comes up with Thailand and payments in Thailand is is, is absolutely fascinating, right? I do have one specific problem with like payments in Thailand, which is like who will eventually win, right? Because the platforms dominate so much in Thailand that it's it's just very difficult to see who will win besides the you know the conglomerates or the or the big tech companies. But yes, absolutely, right? Like if regulation shifts, I think in a dramatic way. You can have like, you can potentially have the party players be a viable um, player in the long run, but that's like very dramatic shifts, right? Like if we think about some of the issues that that the regulators in Indonesia are dealing with on insurance, like it's just so far away. Like yeah, we our thesis is yeah, full stack insurance makes a lot of sense. Will that happen anytime in the next two years in Indonesia? Like slightly unlikely, right? I think what India teaches us is. What can you do to monetize on some of these foundations in a deeper way? And I think that's very exciting, right? Especially from from the idea of okay, like once these foundations are set up, it's going to be costly to set up some of these foundations. How and how much money can we make from these foundations, right? And I think that for me is is, is very interesting and gives a lot of hope for. For conversation, like I, I do go back to EdTech because I think Baidu is obviously the, the biggest, big monster in it. But like everyone used to say, like EdTech, you can't make money from EdTech. It's really, really difficult. The only successful comparables are in China, where like it's it's paranoid Asian parents spending a ton of money, and China's not exactly super poor, and so that's why it it, it kind of works out. And and Baidu came along and built a model that that proved that you can. As an investor into ad tech emerging markets, so I, I really actually deeply respect India for their ability to think about these questions of how do you really make money in a in a shallow market once you build some of these foundations up. I think we have time for one more question from a group, uh, and then we'll wrap at ten o'clock uh, Singapore time. Does anybody want to raise a hand? And then the question is recorded. I feel like this is like one of these awkward, like you know, like teacher in a classroom conversations. <laughs> you know, it's like anybody want to ask a question? Okay, I got, I got, I got a question. I got a question here. Okay, go for it. Hi, thank you, Jeremy. Just one question that I had, and I, I think you may have talked about it before, but maybe just for me and for kind of people who just joined. What do you think? Just looking at next year, what do you think are the industries that you know investors should be on the lookout for in Southeast Asia? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that there is, you know, I always joke is like, you know, tech trends are a function of like what's hot or a fad. I think Varen and I have talked about it before. And then, of course, the contrarian point of view is that if it's hot right now, uh, people think it's hot for next year. You shouldn't invest in that because, <laughs> you know, too many people are chasing that set of ideas. And so, you know, it's going to be very costly. Uh, you know, what is the underlying contrarian bet? I think that you know, I think it's easy to describe it in like what people commonly think is hot uh, right now. Um, so I think one field that's very hot in Singapore and to a certain extent is obviously Southeast Asia is uh, fintech. So fintech is obviously a big part of it is they're saying, you know, people are making certain decisions around emergence into the middle class, right? Um, and so as they enter do so, they need more financing options. They want to manage their money better. They want to make more money. Um, and that's also been accelerated. That I think that market insight has also been accelerated by the success of like neobanks or the perceived success in terms of fundraising history of neobanks and different fintech players uh, in the various markets. 
And I think uh, we also see that Singapore is massively subsidizing the fintech world in Singapore as a base of headquarters. And so that's been a big uh, set of uh, reasons why you see a ton of fintech in terms of like subsidizing VC funds to invest in fintech to subsidizing fintech firms and so and so forth. Because Singapore looks itself as like kind of like a New York or Switzerland for Southeast Asia. I think other things, just to name off and check, I can add a few more that you think are hot. I think two more that jump out to mind is like education technology. So we just talked about it, like Baiju's success kind of de-risk for many investors, their point of view on how do you monetize and can you exit? I think that's the second question uh, from an education tech company. And obviously, some people may argue is more like individual <laughs> uniqueness slash foolishness, you know, in terms of like whether it's you know, a good price and so, so forth. But other people say like, oh, just inspirational and let's go for it. And we see similar again, rising middle class means rising decisions or rising budgets on education as a pathway success, which means more direct consumer approaches and, you know, to supplement or complement uh, existing educational systems in terms of the public choice systems in Southeast Asia. And I think the last one that we're seeing some interesting stuff is um, I think people are looking at trying to tackle, obviously, like small, medium enterprises now. So I think, you know, I think that they were not really looked at as consumption or ability to budget. But I think now of like cut the book and a bunch of these other like B2B SaaS, you know, it's like kind of like selling QuickBooks or zero, but in a much more streamlined way, but some very basic tech tech stuff for underlying company needs for the various Southeast Asia geographies. Yeah, I still remember, probably Dimitri remembers it uh, a lot deeper than me, but like everyone was saying FinTech was dead, like um, as early as last year and then this year, oh, it's the year of FinTech, which is great. So yeah, FinTech, FinTech definitely is pretty exciting, I think. And I think what's, again, interesting there is like that cut-double model, I think, is very unique to India, right? Uh, it's basically a, a simple ARAP ledger. You look at uh, cash uh, credit that you've dispersed out to some of your customers who might owe you money and pay you back like a day later for some of these mom and pop shops. And then the future for that is obviously financial services on top. So I think quite uh, bullish on that. We've been pretty well known in the market for, for this idea of embedded finance, which is non-fintech companies that can build fintech services on top of that. So we invest into Grab, for example, and help build Grab Financial. And so we talk to quite a lot of non-fintech companies who are thinking about um, applying fintech services on top as a, as a real recognition of the, the potential to add on. Obviously. So we're still doubling down on, on embedded finance and writing a couple articles on specific directions. I, I think we could go Thank you so much. That comes up effectively to time. And, you know, for people who are interested, uh, we'll be making this a regular uh, weekly uh, kind of like series. Uh, so this is something that's an opportunity for people to hear more about and uh, discuss as well. So thank you very much. And thank you, Chiar and Varen for, you know, making it all the way here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>